one minute to abandon ship. The ship will automatically destruct in T minus one minute. I will win the crowd. I will give them something they've never seen before. Indiana, we are simply passing through history. This, this is history. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome in to episode two of the Duel of the Greats podcast, folks. For those of you who may be joining us for the first time, um, go back and listen to the first episode. But if you're not, um, then just a little little recap what we do here on this show. We have decided to take two of the greatest directors that have ever lived and kind of, I don't want to say pit them against each other. That sounds a little too... Um, little too aggressive but just sort of you know compare them and contrast them and we'll have themes every week last week of course since it was our first episode uh not only first episode ever first episode of this season of course which would you know possibly we'll have more seasons in the future but um so theme was firsts and the first movie for both directors this week huge week we've got um we'll just go ahead and call it monster week because we have from Steven, I guess I should say Steven Spielberg and Ridley Scott. If you didn't listen to last week, are the are the directors that we're uh, we're comparing here in, in our first season. And so, with Monster Week, as I'm sure most of you would imagine, for both of these directors, Steven Spielberg's monster movie gets to be Jaws, and Ridley Scott's is, of course, Alien. So it actually, you know, it's not exactly lines up but you know these are also movies earlier in their careers as well beyond just uh um being the monster fitting so it's almost almost like a little timeline here but um so those are the two um movies we'll be talking about this week of course as always with this show massive spoiler warning if you haven't seen a movie that's almost 50 years old I- i'm sorry there's not much i can do for you there's um, no hope for you at this point why are you listening <laughs> yeah you're not gonna see it if it's maybe i was maybe actually gonna start yeah, like give a Jaws background of like if you're listening to this podcast and you haven't seen Jaws, <laughs> I just I wonder what you're doing here. Yeah, yeah and I mean, and and even you know honestly, even if you're not, if you haven't seen the movies, you likely are gonna know. Like, there's so much pop culture is steeped from these two films um, between John Williams' score for Jaws and just the shark in the water and the chest bursting scene and Alien, etc. You know it, even if you don't know it, but. If you don't have, you haven't seen it, maybe this episode will make you want to go and see him, and you should because these two films are fantastic. So let's just dive right in here. Um, we're going to talk about these two. We're going to talk about these two movies this week. We're going to compare and contrast how Steven Spielberg handles these, how Ridley Scott handles them, what we thought, which ones did certain things better, certain things worse, etc. Uh, but as we're accustomed to do. You know, not only do we want to talk about the movies themselves, we like to get a little background beyond just what was on the screen. So, you know, normally our resident historian, Steve, is the one who takes this, but but Nate begged us to do it this week because he loves Jaws so much, so he wanted to do Jaws. So, Nate, uh, why don't you give us a little background on uh, on the, the, the Jaws production? Thank you so much to both of you for allowing me to introduce 
Steven Spielberg's Jaws as a young filmmaker, Jaws was like my favorite movie of all time. I have this theory that every young filmmaker has to go through a phase where Jaws is their favorite movie ever. And I definitely went through one of those phases. Like I said a few moments ago, if you have never seen the movie Jaws, I'm not entirely certain what you are doing here, but thank you so much for uh, listening, and I guess I'll take you through a brief plot synopsis if you don't know what the movie is. Spoiler alert. Um, Basically, there is a uh, small town that is being terrorized by a killer shark, and these uh, three men from di- very different aspects of society are basically go out and uh, try to hunt shark. Uh, it's a very simple movie. It was actually uh, kind of introduced the, uh, the, the notion of a high-concept movie in Hollywood where a movie can be pitched with a very simple, like, 25-word synopsis. And this was sort of the first movie that did that. This movie was actually the first in a lot of ways. Uh, before Jaws, there really is sort of a before and after Jaws when you think about this movie. It kind of gets, I feel like people kind of gloss over it now because Star Wars came out a couple years later and it really took all of these elements to a new level. But Jaws was really the first movie that, sort of the first original Hollywood blockbuster in the way that we market and understand Hollywood blockbusters. So it was released during the summer Uh, Before Jaws, movies that were released in the summer by studios were not good movies. They were usually like e-movies or like uh, what they called like silly beach movies and like silly summer movies. Anything that uh, that was like a tentpole studio release was released usually in the fall and early winter, like October, November, December. Kind of now more when we think of like Oscar and award contenders being released. They would release movies that they thought were going to be like big box office successes. This movie was released in the middle of the summer. It was the first movie that was released with a big, wide release of releasing it to several hundred theaters all at the exact same time. Back in the day when they would release movies, they would typically release them in a couple of markets beforehand, and then they would slowly release it to other cities. This was sort of the first movie where they just decided to release the movie with a ton of TV advertisements into every single city in America at the exact same time. And it worked masterfully. It was a huge success. It was actually, uh, at one time, before Star Wars, uh, just a couple years later, uh, at one time it was the highest grossing film of all time. It was the first film to make over $100 million at the box office. However, all that said, it uh, did have a very, uh, this was a surprise uh, to some people because it had a very troubled production. Say the production of Jaws is, uh, it was so troubled that it's probably as famous as the production is as famous as the movie itself. Um, It was the first movie that was actually shot on the ocean. There were movies that took place on the ocean, but a lot of times they shot those in some kind of a big tank on the studio. They shot this movie in Martha's Vineyard. Famously, the mechanical shark that they had designed for shooting this movie did not work. And they, at first, to get around that, they shot all of the scenes on land first, just got everything that they could take care of that didn't require the shark. Then when it came time to shoot the shark, it didn't work. And years later, and actually pretty much immediately, but certainly as the years have gone by, Steven Spielberg has said that was much to the benefit of the movie because, and again, everyone who's seen Jaws knows the brilliance of the movie is that you do not see the shark for a long time. 
Uh, you actually don't see it for like uh, more than an hour into the film. And it ultimately helped the suspense of the movie because what Spielberg did to kind of shoot around a lot of these production problems was he sort of suggested the shark's presence. Uh, Jeff has already uh, brought up the brilliant score by John Williams, this kind of minimalist score that has, uh, like, we could all do the dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun, and we just know that. It's kind of become part of pop culture. We know that that means impending doom. He used it with the musical score. He uh, There's a couple scenes where he actually shoots it from the shark's point of view underwater, and then they're, uh, later in the movie, they affix, they kind of come up with this idea to shooting uh, barrels that are attaching to the sharks so then the shark's presence can be suggested with these yellow barrels that they've attached to the shark did a lot of interesting things and really troubled production but they got through it and by the time they released it it was a huge commercial success um it even picked up several academy award nominations uh john williams actually did win an academy award for his musical score movie won best editing it was nominated for Best Picture. It did not win. However, it lost to One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which is also like a classic film. Not one of those years that you go back. I personally prefer Jaws, but that's not one of those years where you go back and be like, oh my God, there was one movie so superior than the other. Uh, crucially, however, uh, a snub that kind of came to be um, a bit of a thematic issue for Spielberg throughout his career, uh, he was not nominated for Best Director. It was not uh, the last time that would happen that a Spielberg film would be really critically acclaimed, but he would not be nominated for Best Director. So that's kind of the plot and the production history. Uh, it was a really big deal when it came out, and I think uh, it very much still stands the test of time, as we will talk about today. So, fun little note to add to that. Um, you talk about Jaws being uh, was the short-lived highest-grossing movie of all time. My favorite little thing is um, uh, Steven Spielberg, George Lucas, and James Cameron all kind of came about in that same era of time and like like literal same region. They were all in you know South Southern California at the time, um, and they are friends. And so um, every time one of their movies surpasses the other to become a um, best uh, to become highest grossing movie ever, then they'll like commission this art piece and send it to the other person. So when uh, when Star Wars took over Jaws, it was like a um, a drawing of R two D two moving along the sand and you know kicking up a rock with one of his wheels, and the rock went and like knocked out the shark in the ocean. And then with when Titanic took over Star Wars, then it was. Um, you know, the on the Titanic, it was all the Star Wars characters as they were as the Titanic was sinking and stuff. So that's, a, that's fantastic. kind of a kind of a that. fun, yeah, kind of a fun little thing that they do. Now it doesn't matter because James Cameron has like the top five spots because Avatar, yeah. Titanic, and not Avatar, Avatar two, and, one, two. <laughs> so, uh, but I thought that was fun because they uh, a little fun thing that they all do when you're when you're the you know an elite group of directors who are friends. Those are the kind of things you get into. Uh, but for the uh, for the alien history piece, Steve, uh, you're as the resident Ridley Scott expert. I think you can offer. I, uh, some I guess, there. as the kids say, I, I do. They still say that you. I stand Ridley Scott. I don't know if that's a thing anymore. Is that as a teacher of seventh graders? I feel like that has faded. 
just, a little bit, but I'll keep you guys updated week by week on the lingo. I'm not hip to the hip to the culture, I guess. Um, anyway, no. So, uh, first of all, Nate, yeah, thanks for doing that, Jaws. That uh, that was an excellent, excellent rundown. Um, so, Alien released a couple years later. Um, it was actually pitched uh, supposedly as Jaws in space, uh, according to an article, um, the Montreal. Uh, I don't know. It doesn't matter. The Montreal Mirror. Um, from back in 2003 when they re-released the director's cut. Um, So that's interesting, Jaws in Space. Um, We can get to that later, whether we agree or not. But it was Ridley Scott's second film. Um, It came out in 1979. He actually was going to be directing an adaptation of Tristan and Isolde, uh, which would be very interesting. I guess it probably would look something like his Robin Hood. Um, But I'm glad he did this instead. I don't know about you guys. Um he was actually the fourth or fifth director that was tapped by the studio to direct alien. Um, there'd been a couple of reasons why people bounced off, but, uh, it it certainly seemed to be uh, fate that he wound up doing it. So, um, it was originally written by two guys, Ronald Shusset and Dan O'Bannon. Um, and they, uh, subsequently had it rewritten by three guys, uh, Gordon Carroll, David Geiler and Walter Hill. Um, I, this is kind of important because I, a really big plot point, the Ash character was not in Shusset and O'Bannon's original draft. And um, I think that's fascinating. And I definitely want to talk about that later. But in this rewrite, he got added and, um, you know, things proceeded from there. Um, all the roles were written generically. Uh, the goal was to not have them be uh, male or female. And it allowed a ton of flexibility in casting, which is one of Ridley Scott's you know, huge points is uh, nail the casting and you get half the movie is pretty much done. So um, that was thankfully a great way that we got Sigourney Weaver and some of these other fantastic actors in here. Uh, shooting took 14 weeks in 1978, and they finally wrapped it all up with editing and everything in late January 79. It premiered okay not great and it didn't actually didn't actually have a premiere um you know a formal premiere night but its first runs were at a chinese theater in hollywood i guess they had a bunch of pieces of the set out in front and um some of the stuff on the wikipedia page is fascinating by the way so that's one of the sources i use like i do go through and verify the links to make sure it's not a made-up thing but uh go read more about this if you're interested at all um stepping back so they had pieces of the set including the, the space jockey, which um, if you're not familiar with that, that's essentially the big alien-looking guy. Not, well, not the alien alien, but, a, uh, you know, an extraterrestrial-looking guy that's in the spaceship when they first find the egg. Um, and I guess somebody, like, set it on fire, just wanted to destroy it, which is an interesting choice to me. But regardless, tangent, um, it wound up making a decent amount of money for the time, Um about $82 million U.S. Uh, that's worldwide, or excuse me, that's uh, its entire life. Worldwide, a little bit more, probably up to anywhere 105 to $120 million. So, you know, it's decent, but it's definitely not Jaws. Uh, and critics at the time did not uh, really like it. Some folks were okay with the Siskel and Ebert uh, of Siskel and Ebert fame. Both said uh, that it was, it was pretty good, but it wasn't like earth shattering. I think it's, in hindsight, it's come to be appreciated a lot more. Um, and that's even start, that started happening closer to the time of debut than, you know, say now. But when it first came out, I don't think people quite appreciated what 
what they had in their hands. Uh, it did, however, uh, let me undercut my last point by saying it won an Academy Award for visual effects on two nominations. It won two BAFTAs uh, out of six nominations. It cleaned up at the Saturn Awards, um, three wins on seven nominations, including sci-fi film and director. Um, and it won a Hugo Award. So, well, if I may ahead. interject, I do yeah. believe Transformers won an Academy Award for visual <laughs> effects. So not necessarily an indicative of quality. That's but- true. Alien is a quality movie. But That's true. I yeah. just thought I'd throw that in there. So, um, excellent point. It's a necessary condition, uh, or what is it? Sufficient condition to win a visual effects uh, Oscar is that it looks good, but it's not necessary that it actually be a good film. I think I totally butchered that, but you know what I mean. I'm, I agree with you 100%. We got um, you. Yeah. One other interesting little bit that, uh, that is on there from the production I don't know if you guys remember this whole Batgirl scenario with the WB and HBO merger where they, they just completely shelved a complete finished film essentially for accounting purposes. Yeah. Um, Jeff, I'm, yeah, I'm sure you and our, uh, our tech guy, Brandon, our producer, I know you guys know about it. Uh, Nate, I'm not sure if you caught it, but it was the first time I had heard about this technique, uh, but apparently um, Fox tried to do that with alien back in the day. Um, they said with creative accounting that the, the film actually lost $2 million and um, obviously they got sued <laughs> and it was discovered that that was a lie. So I guess they, it was settled in part by saying, all right, fine, you can make alien, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, alien two, which I think became alien three. I don't think that was actually aliens, what they agreed to in the lawsuit. It doesn't matter. That's uh, that's kind of the background of Alien. Um, there's all kinds of interesting details about how the film was made, but I want to kind of get into that more as we uh, discuss further. So, yeah, thank you. So, with like with both these films, you know, for me and you guys can kind of um, say you know how how much you agree or disagree, but I I think and similar to kind of how the 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 films were both similar but also unique last week, you know, I think. Again, these are two really good examples of things that shine through for better and for worse for both these directors, right? So Jaws with Spielberg, right, is, you know, there's the spectacle. Even though, like Nate said, you know, they weren't able to to shoot as much of the shark, you know, like the, he was still able to make it feel like it was a spectacle, this massive shark, and there's all this stuff. And then, um, you know, and then at the end, this this huge, you know, boat scene and and the shark and smile you son of a, you know all these things and and the uh um oh and and side note two of the best taglines maybe ever for movies right you know don't go back into the water for for jaw don't go into the water for jaws and then in space no one can hear you scream for alien like just fantastic for that um but but even with Spielberg, you know, even with the spectacle, it's still kind of more controlled. It is, or not more controlled necessarily, but more um, kind of kind of focused on the town, the shark, the problem right in front of these people that has to be solved, right? And that, you know, again, for better or worse, that's what, what Spielberg does really well. You know, a central conflict, putting that into play, and having everything revolve around that and then having everyone work together to fix that or, you know, overcome whatever obstacles are in their way. Whereas, you know, I look at Alien with Ridley Scott and then there's this sense of wonder 
that happens with Alien. You know, like the the first scene when you see the space jockey, Steve, that you were talking about, right? You go in and it's this huge wide shot and there's all this stuff and there's this space jockey you've never seen before and it's like, oh my God, this is amazing. And there's these... And there's these questions that are out there that are just never answered, right? The what is this? What's going on? What's happening? Why is this here? How did this alien come about? All these things. And, you know, really Scott, just throughout his career and throughout all his movies, he loves that stuff. He just loves putting those questions out there. They don't have to be answered. Um, sometimes he does answer them. But, you know, they're out there. And, you know, it just kind of if you want to distill it down to these kind of points, Spielberg, I feel like you could argue might be more focused on the answer and Spielberg, uh, Scott more focused on the question in terms of, of, of the themes that they go on, go after. And it's just, uh, you know, and then yeah. Spielberg often, you know, he, he, he's been kind of, if there's one criticism of, of Spielberg, I think over his career, um, I don't necessarily always agree with it, but um, it said he's too saccharine. Right, like there's just there's always a hopeful mm-hmm. bent to his endings, you know. And um, Ridley Scott is definitely not <laughs> that way uh, with with a lot of his films, and and Alien is definitely um, you know, similar in that regard. So I, I think for me, you know, again, this it both of those things kind of typify um, what they are, and and also with Spielberg too. Even though it's it's a small portion, it's still there. Every movie of his has to involve some sort of family dynamic. Like, there's just always a family involved, and there's, you know, how that family dynamic is affecting the person and how they do their job, you know, with, with Brody and his wife. And, um, Nate, you said, you said Jaws is at one point your favorite. Have you ever read the book? So I was actually going to bring up the book. Um, I did read the book years ago, and it's interesting. I completely agree with what you're saying about how Spielberg is really good at, and this is kind of goes into that like high concept thinking of like, let's make this very, very simple for the audience. Uh, the book uh, sort of uh, infamously has this uh, big subplot involving. Uh, this, is what was, this is what I was getting at. Yeah. Exactly. An affair, and Spielberg and uh, the affairs between uh, Chief Brody's wife and Matt Hooper, who is the, uh, the Richard Dreyfus character. And Spielberg is, I think, in this instance, really smart about just completely getting rid of that and i hated it i hated uh, it yeah and when you it's funny because when you uh when you read the backstory of them making this film that was actually one of the very first things that he said where he kind of told the producers you know i love the movie but what excuse me i love the book but what i really love is the final act and he kind of said i want to just change everything up to that and in the final act i'll be incredibly faithful to the book um, but I just don't want it to, I don't want to, I want to not complicate it enough for the audience. I want to give them these little tiny bits of sort of this domestic life, which he does. You kind of see these very small moments with, uh, with his family, uh, a moment that I always think of in the movie that I think is really great is where, um, and obviously if you're listening, you can't see this, but I'll try and describe it where, uh, chief Brody is sitting with his son at the dinner table and he's doing this thing with his hands where he's interlocking his fingers and his little boy is doing the exact same thing, kind of silently mimicking him from across the table. It's this really, really sweet, genuine family scene. And I think that makes it feel so real when he gets out on this boat 
and there is this shark, and there's very real possibility that he's going to die. It's these small moments like that where nothing's really spoken, but you, you really feel like this is an ordinary person. And I, I, that's a thing that I love about the movie. Yeah, and, and that was that the sort of family dynamic that what is what kind of grounds all of his movies, I think. And for, you know, Ridley Scott again, you know, doesn't doesn't have that. And these both these things kind of come with the for better or worse kind of thing. And um, I've actually, you know, had discussions with my wife where because I like Spielberg and his movies much more than she does. And that's one of the, the, the things that she likes. She doesn't necessarily like all the, the saccharin, the happy, and I don't necessarily happy, but just everything being grounded in that family dynamic. And I was like, well, that's the one thing that's universal to us all, right? Like good or bad, whatever our family dynamics have been, we have one, you know? And so you can, you can relate to that in some way because even if their family dynamic being shown on screen isn't the same as the one that you have, you can look at it and say, okay, that family dynamic is shaping them just like mine shaped me. And so you can, you can at least, you know, it's, it's like that uh, sympathy versus empathy type of thing. Like you don't exactly feel what they're feeling, but you can sympathize with the idea that they have this feeling because of certain things and that you have had that as well. And so yeah, I think that's part of his genius, but to other people, that can be part of, of what makes it just kind of, you know, makes some whatever. I, don't, I can't even imagine what, what, <laughs> what exactly would it be, but there are some people that, that don't necessarily like it. Whereas, you know, Ridley Scott, I, I don't, um, you know, it doesn't, definitely doesn't focus on that. It focuses more on, you know, people questioning kind of themselves and what they're capable of and their, existence and questioning each other and whether you know what people's motives are and that sort of thing and that's i think that's what he's more focused on and when you look at these two movies and how they shake out with with just how the characters interact with each other i think that becomes very apparent and then you see that kind of explode across their careers man you guys blew me out of the water i i agree with everything you guys said but you said it way more eloquently i found myself when i was watching i rewatched both of these um yesterday I found myself wrestling with, you know, are there any true through lines, you know, a theory of the case, so to speak, on each of these um, directors that can sum up who they are and what they do in, you know, just a line or two. Um, I don't know if that comes from my desire to, you know, my legal training or something, just to boil it down and have, you know, a point that I can hit and therefore support it with evidence. I don't know. But I keep coming back to that. And so I think you guys hit on something there. And this is not obviously the case for all their films. I'm sure there are many exceptions. Um, and there's a huge caveat that film, the thing that makes film unique is it's about moving pictures, it's movement, right? And Spielberg is undoubtedly an expert at, you know, setting up shots and fit, putting them in different scenes and the sequences and, and doing unique things with it. We can discuss that in more in detail, and, and we will, I'm sure, throughout this. But I think if it comes down to it, Ridley Scott is a better visual storyteller in setting a, excuse me, putting a, you know, a setting together with lighting uh, effects, how he uses the camera to put you in a, in a scene um, that he's created via props, production design, sound effects, all that. Whereas Steven Spielberg, I think is a better, just pure storyteller. And, uh, you know, I'm still wrestling with what words I want, but to me, 
if you just read Steven Spielberg's like screenplay of Jaws, it's a lot of it's about the characters, right? And you can in your mind's eye see a lot of this, and it's going to have a pretty dang similar to effect to the movie. I mean, obviously the the movie's an experience in and of itself, but you're going to get, you know, so like those scenes you were talking about, Nate, uh, the dinner table. You're going to be able to read that, and in your mind's eye, picture you know what this means to Brody and his son and all that. Whereas Ridley Scott's films, I think if you just read the screenplay, you're not going to get anything that tells you what, you know, what makes this film a Ridley Scott film. Like his films will not exist in, you know, true Scott fashion until it is actually shot and, you know, sound and stuff is added. Whereas the Spielberg side of it, it's about the heart of the story and the characters. Does that any of that make sense? Well, so just as a, maybe if I see if I'm, tracking with you here but almost like Spielberg can can sort of pull you into the movie almost like you are a, a character yourself experiencing what they're experiencing whereas you know Ridley Scott is able to sort of evoke those feelings like from a distance like that you're still you know almost like a like his movies aren't comic booky but almost in that same sense of 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 like when you're reading a comic book you know you see the mm-hmm. The panel because he doesn't have these, you know, like very expansive shots. Like at least in from from you know, when I think of great Ridley Scott things, I I, I think of a lot of still shots. You know that that maybe or maybe slowly pan. You know Spielberg has those great movements like we talked about with Duel last week, right? Where yeah. that car, the camera swings around the car as it's driving fast down mm-hmm. the highway. You know, whereas Ridley Scott is more like I think about and Nate, you talked about it with the with the shark underwater scenes, right? Whereas I think about the scene um, when Dallas is trying to bring, um, shoot, I forgot his name, but the John Hurt character after he had the face hugger, right? When he's trying to bring him back on the Kane? ship. Uh, is that Kane? Is it Kane? I think that's Kane. That's yeah, Kane is the one that, yep, yeah. Kane's the one that has the, the thing on his face. Yeah, I love John Hurt. But anyway, um, so when, but when he's trying to bring him back on the ship, you know, and the, um, like, before as Dallas is coming up and he's on the comms like open up the doors and all this and like mm-hmm. he's just got this tight shot just sitting there on Sigourney Weaver and she's just like going through all these reactions of like what do I you know I'm not the captain but I can't I can't allow him to do this because he's not on board and I'm in control and and all these things and you just you just see it all right there you know whereas mm-hmm. I, I don't feel like Spielberg has that stillness and I think that kind of goes back to what you were saying as well last week Nate where with the the patience that Ridley Scott just showed in the duelist versus um Spielberg and Duel. Can I say one thing, Nate, before you hop in? Because I know <laughs> I know you got a point. Just it's interesting you mentioned John Hurt. I watched the 2003 director's edition or director's cut with the commentary, and John Hurt described the way Ridley Scott shoots as very documentary-like because he uses multiple cameras uh, to try to just get the shot, get the scene without you know having too much interaction. And so I think that kind of backs up what you're saying. But I just thought that was funny. You used that scene, and John Hurt was the one that specifically said, described his filmmaking that way. I think the dichotomy that you're both trying to to describe that you hit on, I think, really well is that Lee Scott, it seems, is better at world building, where you are. It's interesting. You just described it as a documentary, where it's like you are looking at a document of another world. You see that in Alien. You see that in Blade Runner. We saw it last week with the Duelists. 
Whereas Spielberg, not that he doesn't world build, not that any filmmaker doesn't have to do that. Of course he has to do that. But I think with Spielberg, what he does is he makes you feel like you are part of that world, where you feel like you could be a part of that situation. I don't think Ridley Scott does that as much. I feel more, uh, lack of a better word, I feel more like voyeuristic when I'm watching a Ridley Scott yeah. movie. Whereas yeah. with Steven Spielberg, I feel I a little bit that, more yeah. like, wow, that 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 could be me. I could find myself in this sort of situation. Yeah, I think you guys have nailed that. I even toyed with that the word world building, but I didn't. I had the same, you know. Uh, thought as you did i was like i don't want to short sell steven friggin spielberg here <laughs> you know that guy sucks at world building um yeah you guys i think have helped but, put voice to my thoughts yeah and it's not even that you know what him being good or bad at it but it's 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 a choice that he is trying not to focus as much on that you know i mean yeah. like he he can do it you know you look at minority report right like there was some really good world building in there and you know those things, and, and you know, granted, he's got some source material to work with, with that, which he did have with Jaws too. But you know, it, for him, it's it's a it's a choice to stay focused on certain on, on just a, the certain aspect without getting too too out there with any questions or any sort of you know whatever. And and again, for better or for worse, but I, I tend to think it's it's oftentimes for better in, in his movies. So uh, we've talked a lot about you know, uh, the differences in the directors themselves. What do we think we, we were appropriate in comparing these two films? Is it Jaws in space? Is Jaws alien on the high seas? Because they're, I'm not a hundred percent certain. Um, but go, do you guys have thoughts on that? I think that, I think that alien definitely got made. Be, I think alien definitely got made because of the success of Jaws. Whether or not that means that it really is Jaws in space is one thing. I think from a production standpoint, Alien never gets made. If Jaws, honestly, if both Jaws and Star Wars are not. Star Wars is specifically successes. mentioned, so I was going to say, yeah, I, I think you're right. Yeah. They are necessary, you know. And they, they are. Yep, they are necessary. I read honestly. Uh, when I watched, I rewatched Alien for this and. I really see it as I guess when you look at genre and you look at genre theory I don't on just right on the whole think of Jaws as a horror film now it could be marketed that way and people can understand it that way I see it more as a thriller kind of a lighter horror film that's not entirely meant to just scare audiences Alien I read much more as a horror film see it marketed more that way and that is why i feel like comparing the movies i'm not quite sure i see it as jaws in space because jaws is a little bit more thrillerish it's a little bit more action adventure i feel like particularly there are uh more um kind of integrated moments of comedy in jaws than mm -hmm. there are in alien yeah. really from the very beginning and honestly kind of throughout the whole alien. thing <laughs> There's nothing really all that funny um, in there's, Alien at all. There's no drunken scene where they're all, you know, they're, oh, they're, they're, it seems like they're about to, right? When after, uh, after Kane 
gets the facehugger falls right. off. It's like, oh, we're going to have our and USS he, Indianapolis scene, and then you get one of the most horrifying scenes in cinema. Yeah, the most horrifying right. scene in the existence of cinema. So, so it's like he even teases us into yeah, thinking right? that we're going to get like, oh, finally, kind I of a lighthearted moment, just like Jaws. Nope, nope, not did like you Jaws. Guys, did you guys know? Sorry to interrupt you. Um, none of the actors knew exactly how that was going to go down, except for John Hurt, obviously, and Tom Skerritt. I was reading this today where um, like the blood spurting out because there's this moment when that happens where I really noticed this on rewatch where when that first kind of like squib of blood flies up and nothing really comes out of his chest yet, but it just hits his shirt. Mm -hmm. There's this great moment and it really speaks to really Scott's directing style where uh, Stevie just talked about where he has all the different cameras and he's just kind of getting the reaction where there's almost there's this pause. Yeah. There's this very deliberate pause, which I think is completely legitimate with the cast. I think that they did not know that that's about to happen. Yeah. And they literally, like, kind of stop almost like, what's happening? And then it kind of keeps going. (laughs) Just that brief. Veronica Cartwright, man. I know. And she just gets sprayed in the face. And just that pause, though, is a really, really great. I mean, that really is crap. That is a kind of directing craft. To have that pause and allow that yeah. to be there. It's a really small micro moment that I think is an important moment. She was on the, the commentary, and yeah, she said she was basically scared. She, she like <laughs> fell backwards over a piece of the set that they, they don't show her after she gets sprayed with it. Uh, yeah. What I mean, a, that's like, that's like a, in Empire Strikes Back, where, um, you know, uh, uh, Mark Hamill and George Lucas were the only yeah. ones that knew that Vader was his father and they just dubbed in the lines afterwards. Like that's, that's that level. I had no idea. That's crazy. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's, uh, that's fantastic. They had seen um, like they knew about the puppet, but they did not know exactly yeah, that when it was going to happen. Um, but, but to your, to your larger point, Nate, I, I absolutely agree. You know, I, I, I also kind of hesitate to put jaws um, as horror. I almost, I almost hesitate to put alien and horror, but it's definitely more than jaws. I've actually become really, into horror movies and horror in general like over the last year and a half or so started watching a lot more horror movies and reading horror books and different things and um so like the idea of what defines that genre is actually quite interesting but um yeah with with jaws it's you know it's very controlled because it's like, don't go into the water. And it's like, that's actually good advice because if you don't go into the water, you don't have to worry about it, <laughs> you know? And, but so it, this, this idea of, of horror is like this monster that's out there, but it's like a very easy, it's not like Freddy or, or Jason, you know, where it's like Jason can, can come after you no matter what and Friday the 13th, right? He's just, he's always coming, but you know, it's Jaws just get up there on the shore. I'm going to get you, you know, <laughs> I don't know what he would do, but it's, uh, but with, with, with alien, you know, in space, no one can hear you scream. And this just, you're, you're all alone. And the vacuum of space is outside of you or outside of the, the ship. And all you, you're trapped in here with this thing and you don't know what it is. You don't know what it wants. And, and, you know, Jaws had Hooper, right? He had, he came in, he was like, I've spent my whole life studying these things. I know what they want. I know how they act. I know what to do to get him to do what we want to do. You know, obviously it was so big. It, it only mattered so much, but, um, you know, with the alien, it's like we have no idea where this thing came from, what it wants, why it's here, how to how to fight it, what to do. It's got this acid blood that burns through our whole ship. What are we gonna do? You know, it just and so that that sort of fear 
of, of, of the unknown, which is a big staple of the horror genre, is very present in Alien, and it is not present in Jaws. I mean, to a slight degree, because you don't know where the shark is at times, but, but you know, the unknown in the true, like, horror sense is definitely not there on near the scale that it is with Alien. I think it's interesting when talking about them as horror films, uh, to your point, Jeff. Scariest part of Jaws doesn't involve the shark. Scariest part of Jaws is when they go investigate, uh, investigate like Ben Gardner's boat, whatever the guy's name is, and he goes down and the head pops out, which is this very like biggest jump horror scare esque, yeah. yeah, because of the jump scare. But it doesn't involve the shark. That's not that you know the you know the scariest part of the movie doesn't involve the shark. Whereas I think uh, you know Alien, the creature and being trapped there is very much a part of that genre and how we classify it. It's interesting, my little personal anecdote about um, about the movie Alien, and Steve, I don't know if you'll recall this, when I worked at Disney World and I worked at the Great Movie Ride, uh, one of the movies that you travel through is Alien. That was always the part of the ride where it was very much, the ride moved very slowly, but it was very much like when little kids came up, we were like, eh, I don't, like, they might be scared if they're scared of, like, dark things and, and big scary creatures that pop out at you. So maybe that's a little bit a part of my uh, my thinking as well because I always thought of that as like a really scary part of the ride and maybe that's why I still am so hooked on that as being like a horror kind of thing. For what it's worth, go ahead, Jeff. Well, you you started, Steve. You go. For what it's worth, Ridley Scott and the cast and the crew were alternatively referring to Alien as a horror movie and a thriller. And I guess one of the things Ridley Scott wanted to do once they read the script and they decided to shoot this thing, he and the, the writers, I think it was O'Bannon, they, they sat down and Ridley Scott said, we're going to watch all these B-movie horror films from the 60s and early 70s and also good ones like um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And he said, I want to have that feeling except in space. So they at least thought they were making a horror movie. Yeah, and it doesn't have to be strictly, you know, horror thriller. Like they, there can be a, a Venn diagram, oh, yeah, you know, where there's some overlap for sure. Sci-fi but um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. But um, yeah, it's and also like, you know, the impact of the shark is, it's not the the impact of the shark itself. It's the enormity of it, right? Like that a shark shouldn't be that big. This is a massive. It is a big shark, but it is still a shark. Right, whereas the reveal of the xenomorph, the alien, is it's completely alien. It's nothing we've ever seen, and that goes to um, mm-hmm. H.R. Geiger's work as the, the the design. And like he is just, I mean, he's a legend for a reason, right? But his, you know, and that, you know, these I actually have the um, the alien. I follow the alien subreddit on Reddit, and every once in a while there'll be this conversation. It's actually not Alien subreddit. It's the LV426 subreddit, which is the um, the planet. But the it's really interesting because every once in a while, this topic will come up, you know, and, and people will be like, you know, people want to be pedantic, and they'll be, they'll be like, oh, well, you know, it's uh, we can't forget about O'Bannon and H.R. Geiger and all this stuff for, you know, it's not all Ridley Scott and all this. It's like, of course, you know, of course every movie is not just the director, you know, but... Ridley Scott went out and said, H.R. Geiger, you know, you need to work on this movie with me. And just like when, you know, we talk about some of the great cinematography in Spielberg movies, right? Like, 
I don't think he did Jaws, but Janusz Kaminski is one of the best cinematographers in Hollywood history, and he's almost worked on every Spielberg film in the last, you know, 30 years. But um, yeah. that was an aside. Uh, just point being, you know, there's there's so many great things that especially, uh, I think, Alien more so even than um, Jaws is kind of a um, just the it, it's not even it, the the whole and the sum of its parts are great. Whereas Jaws, the whole is great. You know, the sum of its parts. I think you could kind of break those down, and 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 it would just be not quite as great. Like some, you know, it's just a beach town. The set design. There's nothing spectacular about that. It's it's Spielberg's direction and his his character work that really brings that together. And, you know, you could also even it, get it, get this into the seventies when these both directors came up was really when the kind of Nate, you can probably speak more to this, but when the kind of auteur theory sort of started kicking off of, of the, cause, cause before it was always like the producer was kind of the big guy to, to be attached to a film, you know, years and years ago. And then it started where, you know, in the 70s when Scorsese and Coppola and, and Spielberg and Ridley Scott and everybody started coming up and then it was the director was kind of the big name that was attached and that was who, and the director became sort of given more power and all this. And you could kind of you could kind of see that, um, I feel like that is more, Jaws is a better um, example of auteur theory than, than, than Alien simply because there were just so many pieces that had to come together for Alien to be as great as it was, whereas... Um, you know, with Jaws, it was just such a, a force of Spielberg's work. I, personally, I felt like it's it's interesting you bring up a tour theory because what's happening in this generation that I think you really see with both of these movies very clearly is you have this generation of filmmakers that have grown up with these very strict genre pieces that were not always good. And it's fascinating because Steve actually said that Ridley Scott had them watching like old B movies. And I had mentioned earlier that, you know, summer releases before Jaws were typically, uh, you know, something along the lines of like silly beach movies or like a silly B-movie monster movie. And what Spielberg does is he essentially said that what Jaws is the product of is just saying, what if all of those movies, those like ridiculous summer movies that I watched growing up, what if one of them was good? And I think Alien does the exact same thing where it's like these old, like, happy sci-fi movies or these old mm -hmm. B monster movies. And Ridley Scott kind of asks himself, what if all those movies I grew up watching, what if one of them was just really good? And I think both of those films are kind of the product of that sort of thinking of they're clearly influenced by these things they've watched growing up, but they just were so smart and filmmaking was changing. And those guys are so talented that they were able to take it to the next level and create something that was really memorable and really great. Yeah, hundred uh, percent. That's that's really interesting. Yep. Um, so you know, I think we're kind of kind of winding down here, but just kind of before we get to the final rating portion, uh, again, both of these are kind of. Uh, is this the ex second film for both of them? I know it's for second for Ridley Scott. I cannot. Uh, I remember think Spielberg if... had one in between. Spielberg had. So it kind of depends on where you start Spielberg's filmography. So like, Duel was a made-for-TV movie. This was his second movie that he made for release in theaters. Okay. Um, he had made the Sugarland Express okay, right before yeah, yeah. this, which I is actually how it. he got attached to direct Jaws because it was also produced by David Brown and Richard Zanuck. 
So he kind of got interested in it. He'd seen them reading the book, and that's how Spielberg eventually became attached to Jaws is because he'd already directed a movie for those producers. So, um, but, you know, second movie, third movie, early career for both of them. So, I mean, do we see any themes here? Like, one thing, and I've already kind of touched on this, but um, I think it was a very good point you brought up last week, Nate, with Duelist and Ridley Scott and The Patience that he had versus Spielberg. And I think, again, 100% relevant and applicable to both these movies. You know, I already brought up the scene where, um, you know, it, it's the, the Dallas is trying to bring Kane on the ship and, and Sigourney Weaver's Ripley character is just kind of, you know, sitting there like just trying to have this a thousand permutations of what could happen go in her head and, and just kind of locked in on her. And then you see Dallas on the, on the view screen and all this stuff. And, um, you know, that the the chest bursting scene like we talked about and, and all this stuff. It it feels like there's he lets shots linger just you again, I think I'm I'm stealing this from you last week, Nate, where he lets shots linger just a second too long. Where Spielberg it's never a second too long. It's it's always perfect. And like that's good. And that makes him fantastic and a you know so great. But like sometimes when you when you're when you leave those shots for a little bit too long it can become weird and it can ruin the pacing but with scott and specifically with this movie it it really heightens everything um so you know i think in terms of their careers i think those are those are two two things that we noticed last week in those movies and we notice again this week in these movies i i think you absolutely identified one of the themes for scott moving forward because he specifically said in the commentary that one of his fears while shooting this was and, ed, you know, obviously in the editing process as well. Am I letting these shots linger too long? He specifically said that. And then he thinks for a second, he's like, well, basically, obviously not. It worked. It, you know, it, it worked in this movie and it, it, uh, it helped build the tension. Um, I, you know, so it, you've 100% identified something that he, we're going to see him use, I think, moving forward as well. I think the patience, again, is so obvious with both of these films because perceived threat the alien and the shark you don't see them for extremely long periods of the film um whereas you know before this particularly with alien if you jaws it makes sense because okay the shark wasn't working and they kind of had to shoot around it and it sort of became this creative endeavor that they were taking on alien if you would have designed a creature that looked that badass and was that inventive would think oh they're gonna put that thing up at the very beginning as quickly as they can make it all about that and they don't they really hold it back i think i read steve you may know i read that like the actual xenomorph like the final version of it only has like three or four minutes of screen time like you really don't actually see the alien for that long in the movie yeah. alien again i think i think that just speaks to their patience of how they're going to make the audience wait for it and use those moments at just the right time we don't see it in its entirety until it's literally being destroyed by the engines at the end like from head to tail or wow head to foot tail tail whip Uh, they apparently had to make a special chair by the way for that guy because once he had his tail attached he couldn't sit down (laughs) poor guy um but yeah on the patience thing too like and this goes this is something that anyone who's ever made an alien movie after scott has also adapted that has been great but but just um and actually now i'm trying to think but but the the egg scene right like when kate reaches the egg and the egg just like slowly opens up and you look at it 
and you know you're back at Kane and you look at it and he's talking I don't know what it is you know and, and all this stuff and just that one just kind of I know what's happening I know it's going to happen and it still gets me every time because it's just that's how effective that technique is for that particular type of scene and you see it again in um, Alien Covenant you know when uh, Orem Billy Crudup's character you know when he opens the egg and you know David's right there and he's talking to him and he's just like, what, you know, David's like, just have a look. Go. Let's go look inside, <laughs> you know. And it's, <clears throat> you know, it will be fine. Uh, and we still, we know what's going to happen because we've seen the previous movie, you know. Orem didn't see it, but we saw it. We know what's happening. And it still gets you because it's just like, it's so effective. And that was Scott again, again, of course. So, yeah, I, don't, I guess I don't know now if there was any other egg scenes quite like that in a non-Ridley Scott alien movie because Aliens and Alien 3... I don't remember or resurrection having a direct scene like that. So maybe it was just just a Ridley Scott thing. At, I mean, in the end, surely nothing, definitely nothing that had been seen on that scale. No. Um, but so, anyway, so good. Well, go, what were you going to say? What were you going to say? Well, I I was going to bring up a different um, aspect of Alien that I wanted to get your guys' opinion on. But mm-hmm. if you're still talking about the no, go for it. I was mm-hmm. gonna I was gonna transition as well. So go for it. So one of the the writer in the commentary specifically said that he absolutely freaking hated the Ash subplot. And this is, I think, a big difference between the two movies. You know, Spielberg cut out, like you guys mentioned, the uh, the affair subplot, just gave us straight shark action. Here, Alien could have existed without Ash, you know, trying to subvert the crew and bring this alien back to Wayland yutani um, But they didn't. They put him in there. Um the writer called it the Russian spy problem because I guess from a lot of old movies, he specifically referenced Fantastic uh, Voyage, the one where they shrink down and go in the bloodstream uh, and the guy's bloodstream, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Um, you know, everything's going fine and then just all of a sudden, oh, one of the people's a Russian spy and now we have to deal with that when really it doesn't affect, doesn't really heighten the tension or anything because, you know, things were already pretty suspenseful as it is. He, spe- he I went, I rewound it and he said, I found the idea of Ash an inferior idea of inferior minds, but well-acted and well-directed. So I'm curious. So funny that, that you're bringing this up and you're, I feel like Jeff was about to transition into our positives and negatives, but you're stepping on the toe of one of my negatives of Alien is that the Ash subplot, and not even oh, just wow. the subplot, the fact that he's an android is still something that just kind of bothers me to the point of like, I don't feel like that was necessary. It feels almost like an entirely different science fiction movie that they kind of tried to shoehorn into this alien movie. And it just, it's the one part of the movie that I feel like is kind of silly and unnecessary. And it's, it's never won me over. And I've always thought that it was unnecessary. Excuse me. That's really interesting. Um, So this is something that may be colored by the fact that, um, if you ever see like on Twitter or something, somebody will randomly say like, oh, you know, what's your what's your biggest movie sin or something like that, where it's always someone like, I've never seen The Godfather and I don't care. Something like that. Um, you know, I, I, I see su- myself in that one, by the way. Yeah, but I suppose oh, one of my, <laughs> I suppose one of my my movie sins would be that, um, you know, I became an alien fan late in later in my life. I. <laughs> Our producer, Brayden, just gave his movie set of Pulp Fiction being overrated. Um, I actually 
even though I might I disagree agree. with it, I wouldn't. I wouldn't disagree with having that opinion. If that makes sense, but that's a different story. Um, but in terms of um, oh, Brandon, you want to say something? Oh, I thought you were. I thought you were, I thought you were getting ready to say something. But um, so one of my movie sins would be. I actually saw Prometheus before I saw Alien. I don't know why I never saw Alien growing up. The only and person in the history of film that did that, I'm pretty sure. I don't know why <laughs> it happened that way, but um, I just always, Alien was always there, and I think I always had it as something that, okay, I should probably see this, but it wasn't made as big of a deal. It, it didn't seem as big of a deal to me as as some of the other classic, as Jaws or something like that, you know? So I just never, um, even though I liked Ridley Scott, I was definitely not as big a fan as I was of the other, like, 70s directors, you know, Scorsese, Spielberg, Coppola, et cetera. Um, so I just, I just never saw, and then I saw Prometheus, and I loved Prometheus, which is apparently a controversial opinion. I guess people, some people don't like Prometheus, but, um, and so I was like, okay, I gotta go back and watch Alien. And the crazy thing about it was that we talked about how, you know, how effective some of these things were, even though, like, the whole point of Prometheus is explaining what the space jockey was. And that's, I think that's why some people don't like Prometheus, because they're like, I like the, the not knowing what the space jockey was. I like that better. Um, so that, totally fine. That's okay. But um, even with me knowing that scene where he first steps down into the ship and you see the space jockey, it still had the same effect on me. I still, like, my heart started skipping beat and I was, or started jumping and I was just like, oh man, this is epically cool. And I still had that sense of wonder and that sense of unknown. And it's just because that's so effective as a director, you know? And that's why the spoiler alerts can sometimes be, be a little overrated because, like, if you're, if you're that good, you know, you can still have the same effect, obviously, if it's a huge plot point. It's, it's, it's you know, changes things. But, um so uh, that's that's interesting but back to the point of of ash um I, I wonder if because i had seen prometheus first and david the android was such a big factor in that movie if i maybe that was already established in my head as a theme and so seeing alien i'm just like okay ash being the android you know that makes sense that tracks with what i know from Ridley Scott and what I like. And, you know, it's very clear from both Prometheus and Alien Covenant that that, you know, being shoehorned into the plot of Alien is exactly what happened because Ridley Scott wanted that idea in there because that's what he's exploring further in these later movies versus, you know, the Xenomorph. Xenomorph is just kind of this, this element of chaos that's part of the universe, whereas, you know, humanity and what humanity is doing and the androids being a big part of that as sort of, you know, and we're going through a little bit of this right now with the idea of AI, right? Like chat GPT and all this stuff where it's just the idea of, of you know, if we get to the point where an AI can do something uh, like be put into an android, it is only what we program it to be. And that is our best and our worst. And when you're Ridley Scott, you look at it and, and he's outlining all the worst um, of what can be. And that's what... So, in that regard, I always think the Android aspect is really interesting. So that's that's interesting that, that, you, that it's a lot of people don't like that. I I come down on the side of it would have been still a great suspense movie, a great horror and thriller movie. But I'm with you. I think because of everything you just enunciated, you have to have Ash in there to 
the true themes of these movies, and I don't even know if the filmmakers really thought about this when they were making it, but in hindsight as a viewer, the true themes are unbridled greed and capitalism put people in danger. I mean, it really is that simple. Were it not for the desire to make money, none of those people would have been eaten on the, well, I guess maybe Chrissy might have been. First person would have died. Uh, but yeah, they would know. have shut the beach very quickly. Exactly. Yeah. The beach would have been shut down. We wouldn't have had this whole problem. The poor bastards on the Nostromo would have been just fine. They would have left the egg and it, you know, and all the subsequent things that happened in the sequels never would have happened. So if you don't have the Ash character, then that's not a theme of alien. It is just this, you know, nature is cruel and this is just happening. It's dual. It becomes dual, it's basically, in- except inside the spaceship. It's interesting because, um, <laughs> because it is. It's like it's like greed, and it's like corporate greed. Uh, one of the uh, scholarly readings of Jaws is that, in some ways, whether conscious or unconscious, is kind of a response to the Watergate scandal. And sort of a lack of trust in the government, because in the movie Jaws, it's the mayor. It, it's the it's the power hungry mayor who wants the beaches to to be I don't kept know. open. I don't know that dude's act, who that, that actor, but he is so scummy, and I love it. He's he so is. good in that role. He is, and he's still the mayor in Jaws too. And I always like to point that out because you should vote in local elections. <laughs> Because even after he is <laughs> like great. he's personally responsible outside of the shark, he is personally responsible for people dying on his beaches, and they vote this guy back into office, presumably, so that he can wreak havoc on this poor little community again in, in Jaws Two. Please vote in local elections, everyone. <laughs> and the actor, thanks to our fearless producer Brandon Nichols, our actor, the actor is Murray Hamilton, who played him. So, but he's so good at that scummy politi- politician. I I love it. Um, so yeah, um, what about, what about Jaws? What, what are, what are negatives that we have in Jaws? I, I really struggle to find negatives in Jaws because I feel like with Alien, um, it was way more ambitious than Jaws was. Um, so maybe the, I don't want to call it a lack of ambition because again, it was very, a very specific choice, but, um, Maybe that's a, a possible fault. But in terms of everything that Jaws tried to do, it did successfully, I, I felt. you know. And I, I always go back to Roger Ebert is my favorite writer of all time. Books, screenplay, whatever. Like, I love Roger Ebert. And I'll read his reviews forever. But um, you know, his thing was always, you know, it's not what a movie's about. It's how it's about it. And the, that's what Spielberg excels so much at, you know. How, how it's about it. He always gets that, and he always nails it. And it's because he he chooses to define that. He picks his lane with each movie. It's not always the same lane, which is good, but he picks his lane, and he stays in it. And um, so even though that's part of what makes Jaws great, I, I do think that you could you could kind of turn that around and say maybe that's, maybe that's possibly its one weakness, that there could have been a little bit more ambition there. They could have been, a, they could have, Tried to have a, a little bit more of a of a biting criticism on capitalism and, and politics and these sorts of things, but it you know the guy was there and he was smarmy and scummy, but you know it was still it, they didn't attack it like they could have maybe. I yeah I, I agree that. Go ahead, Steve. 
Oh yeah, it's, I was just gonna say it's nearly a perfect movie. The the only I, I thought about this. The only complaint that I have, and this is I don't know if it's just a personal thing or not. I feel like I have this complaint about most movies. I think they could have taken out about ten minutes in the third act, kind of from post uh, Indianapolis speech and pre final shark on the boat scene. I just feel like we have a lot of kind of repeat scenarios where you know, oh, there's the buoys and you know, oh, he's underwater again. Now he's back. And I, I just didn't feel like it ratcheted up the tension that much. Um, it, you know, I feel like they could have trimmed a little bit there, but again, pretty much a perfect movie. Yeah, I feel like there's a little bit of they the the story behind the production was they went out to shoot some real life. If you can believe the comedy of all this, at one point, early, very early, there was some thought, some silly producer somewhere in Hollywood that thought that they would actually try and train a great white shark. Um, <laughs> which is kind of insane. They did actually go and shoot some footage of real sharks that they put in uh, to the movie. I think part of the reason the third act uh, that it gets extended a little bit is there's a scene where the Richard Dreyfuss character goes down in the cage, and I yeah. think they felt really compelled to include that because there is a shot from underneath where a shark is ripping apart a cage, and that's actually real. It happened oh, wow. while they were trying to film a real shark, and it kind of got caught in a cage, and it sort of tore it apart. I think they felt really compelled to include uh, that particular footage. So that's, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's just like that's why they wanted to do it. I think my only criticism of it would be, and this is like I, you don't even say it as a criticism because it's become such an accepted part of the movie that you kind of just, even though it's a flaw, it's like such a famous flaw that people love to look over it. Is that. In the moments when you do finally see the whole shark, it does look kind of fake. There have been criticisms of how the shark looks, particularly at the point where uh, when it kills Quint and it jumps completely up on to the boat, it, it kind of looks fake. That was a criticism of it at the time. You know, I still think it still scared the hell out of people then. I think still think it's pretty creepy, and I love it. And again, it's such a famous flaw of the movie that there's parts where the shark looks kind of silly that you've almost come to like love and accept that about it. So I don't even think of that really as a negative of the movie. And, and alien is not really immune to that either. Like a lot of people I've, I've heard them refer to as, as jazz hand with, yeah. with the alien, um, with some of the scenes. So, you know, cause it was a guy, like you said, Steve, it was a guy in the suit. So, uh, you know, and they did what they could back in the seventies, of course, you know, that, Alien gets to it, it. It gets the excuse of we don't know what a xenomorph would look or move like, so it can look or move like anything you want. But you get an uncanny valley effect when you have a robot that's trying to move like a fish that we've all seen. But I actually saw an interesting documentary. Um, it was on Disney Plus a year and a half, two years ago. Um, it was about this woman who's like a leading shark expert. I think she actually did some of the footage for Jaws some of the underwater shark stuff, because she would, like, swim with sharks. Might have even been called swimming with sharks. I don't know. But um, she, because she's, like, it was, she's actually, her and her husband actually went and traveled the world after Jaws came out. And um, we're like, you know, don't, this is giving sharks a bad name, right? Like, yeah, accidents happen, but, like, sharks are not these horrible Horror, horror movie monster creatures, that type of thing. So um, it's, inter it's interesting that you mentioned with all the footage and trying to train great white sharks because one of her beliefs was that, you know, you can essentially, um, not I don't even know about train them, but, like, you can, like, befriend them like you could a dolphin or something like that, you know, and she's, like, swimming with them 
and like there are some that would like recognize her and like come up to her. it was fascinating really cool you should check it out i'll have to see what what it is this has yeah, been I, well, I don't have a source on this but this has been like widely stated that uh, peter benchley the author of the book said that he would have never written the book uh, if he would have known about uh, the attitudes it was going to produce around sharks uh, to the well. point that he that he actually became uh, later in his life like a shark conservationist that he would like go around and talk to people and make sure that people donate all these money to like research you know uh, marine research facilities where people would take care of sharks and he was very much uh, at the forefront of talking about how sharks were not these bad creatures that his book and the movie had made it out to be. Yeah, and um, it's, yeah, because they have, they have, like, shark fishing competitions and, like, just horribly, horribly cruel things that they do to these sharks. It's awful. Um, but that's, that's an aside. Um, <clears throat> so... As as will always come, is um, oh Brandon Brandon pulled it up for us again. Our producer coming in the clutch. A quote from Peter Benchley: "What I know, quote what I know now, which isn't known when I wrote Jaws, is that there's no such thing as a rogue shark which develops a taste for human flesh. No one appreciates how vulnerable they are to destruction." And that was in 2000 for that quote. Thank you, Brandon, for doing that. Um, so yeah interesting there um but now as does as will come with every episode um we have to give our final opinions so um and who who wins the duel this week and this is this is like my sophie's choice right here this is so difficult because i love these movies so desperately um and i struggled with it struggled with it all week coming up to this and I, I think I'm going to have to go with Jaws because um, just kind of what we talked about, you know, the it's, it's damn near perfect. Like, again, with that, that Roger Ebert quote, it's, it's how it's about it and how they were about Jaws was, was damn near perfect with, with everything they did. And I could watch that movie a million times, and it's, it still has that same effect because it's so well and so perfectly encapsulated. And... Alien is is so close to that, and I love it so much. And there's so many ideas and different things that I love about it, but those aren't necessarily a part of the movie itself, right? Like they're questions that are raised and ideas that are that are kind of explored, but they're they're not fully tackled in that movie, and they're part of this larger universe that I know now having seen all the Alien movies and putting all the pieces together and loving that universe so much, but just taken as a movie as uh, itself, Alien, it doesn't quite get there um, like Jaws does without all this additional knowledge that I have. So, you know, Alien, we just like we talked about, from world building, from lore, etc., you know, Alien 100% takes the cake on that one, but from a movie, sitting down, watching, spending two hours of your life... Um, Jaws is both better and a better experience, probably, um, for me. So I give I give the nod to Jaws, but it's it's very slim and is very hard choice. Yeah, um, I'm the same way. I can't. It's so almost impossible to make a distinction. To me, it's a dead heat. So for a tiebreaker, being the history buff that I am, I'm giving it to Jaws. 
because it's got the, you know, Quint talking about the USS Indianapolis, and there's nothing like that in, in Alien. And that gives his character, obviously, a much more meaningful backstory, when, especially when it finally comes time to end him. Um, so, Jaws it is for me as well, but just ever so slightly. Oh, I'm a little disappointed I don't get to break a tie, um, because I would definitely go with Jaws as well. My personal bias will creep in there. It's uh, still one of my favorite movies of all time, and I rewatch it a lot. The only point that I'll add to... Maybe putting Jaws over it. First of all, yeah, the USS Indianapolis speech is just one of the great monologues in cinema history, and I don't think Alien has anything like that. Also, as I've kind of noted throughout the entire episode, I just feel like Alien at times slips into more conventional horror genres. The only point I haven't brought up from my notes that I wanted to bring up is I literally wrote down here, stop splitting up. It, they keep, the characters keep splitting <laughs> up, and it's the that's, most cliche... And it's just like, why are you... And there, here we go, we're splitting up into pairs again. I wonder what's going to happen to one of these pairs. And then everybody's split up. And, that, and I then mean, you call I on the have, radio. Dallas? Dallas, are you there? <laughs> and they're calling on the radio. And it's just like, everyone's he's going into the Tom Skerritt characters, going into the air ducts alone. And oh my god, he's right there. He's coming up to you. He's next to you. Like, stop splitting up. And that, like, that little bit of cliche, which is not present in Jaws, is really what's going to put Jaws over the top for me. So there you have it. We're two weeks in, and even though Nate didn't have to break a tie week or tie breaker this week, um, we we're tied now. We got Ridley Scott last week with the Duelist. Um, we gave him the nod as Nate broke that tie, and now we've we've all gone with Spielberg and Jaws this week. So, um, Steve, you got something to add? Yeah, just before we signed off, I, there's another podcast called Inside Jaws that details the the making of the movie. And if you if you are at all interested in what Nate talked about, uh, go listen to that. It's fantastic. And then, again, History Buff, the, if you are at all intrigued by the story of the USS Indianapolis, um, there's a terrible Chris, uh, Nick Cage movie about it. Don't watch that. There's a podcast by a guy named Dan Carlin who does a lot of things, uh, a lot of history podcasts. It's called Hardcore History. He has, a, you know, just a one shot. It's called, I think, just... USS Indianapolis. Maybe we can put it in the show notes, but uh, it, it can give context and describe the true horror that Quint lays out for you. So I just, I really wanted to share that in case anyone was intrigued by both of those things. I think Brandon, are you, you're a hardcore history fan. I, I am a, a very large hardcore history fan. I feel like Steve, am I the one that turned you on to hardcore history? Uh, no, I think we each independently came to it, but gotcha. We, we you both definitely talk- bonded over it. Yes, 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 we did. I do also want to point out there is no such thing as a bad Nick Cage movie. But anyways, <laughs> I'm a huge Nick Cage fan. No bad Nick Cage movie, <laughs> the, only the bad not- watchers. Exactly. Only bad viewers. <laughs> and I, um, I also want to I want to congratulate Jeff on making at least one full complete episode before we got to an episode where you brought up anything relevant to Transformers being an amazing movie to you. <laughs> there we go. Hey, you know, and we got we got Transformers coming out. This summer, Beast Wars. I am super pumped. Not are you, are you cosplaying? I might. I just. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So that's that's what we got for this week. And next week, another big week. I mean, they're all going to be like the first week of this. The first, the first movies are the le- probably two of the le- lesser known for each. 
So the rest of them are going to be, as the kids say, bangers. Is that Nate? Is that right? Do they still say that? Are they are things bangers these days? I don't think I've heard that in a in a in a very long time. Oh, no. you're not right. passing the vibe check right now. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll try and like word. I'll try and like word sneak in some of their slang next week, and we'll see if you guys can pick up on it. Okay, all right. All right. Maybe sure. that can be a, a side segment, right? One seventh okay. grade slang word per week. But, I feel. I feel um, like I need I'm to start keeping it. notes of anything I hear my teenager say or my ten year old. There you go. Yeah, we got experts on hand. That's true. I will tell you, there is uh, no faster way I can make them cringe other than by using the words "no cap" and uh, <laughs> there's, there's a couple no other cap. I throw you, out there. You introduced me to no cap here. Um, so, but next week another big week. I'm gonna call them bangers because that's what they are. Although maybe that that's a little given the topic of, of of at least one of them. But we're gonna go with the Oscar winners <laughs> next week. That's our theme. So Oscar winners for best picture. Um, which consists of, for Steven Spielberg, you could say the first one, and for Ridley Scott, I believe it's the only one. Um, but uh, actually, no. Is that does Spielberg have another one that's one Best Picture? Spielberg just has the one. Just the one. Have, okay, he should have two. We'll talk about have. this next week. Yeah, he, he should got have robbed. Two. Yep. He's won twice for Best Director, but that's right. That's um, but we'll talk about that a different time. Uh, but it's Schindler's List from Spielberg and Gladiator from Ridley Scott. And you want to talk about being robbed? Maybe you could talk about Gladiator and Ridley Scott being robbed because he's never won an Oscar. Probably touched on it multiple times. Travesty. Is, Spielberg has been nominated Travesty. six times for Best Picture. Oh, and only won once. That's crazy. And he's won twice for Best Director. So, anyway, that's a very short list of and interesting. You, you, uh, what movie was it that you you mentioned? Um, oh, uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and um, Milos Forman directed that movie. And it, I just, I always think it's so weird. He's won Best Director twice, which is like a very, very short list. And yeah. no one ever talks about him. Like, do anybody, how many people even know who he is, right? Like, I couldn't tell you what he looks like. I know his name. I know because that, that list he's on. But I couldn't tell you another movie. He uh, Amadeus, that's the second one that he won. Oh, okay. And uh, People versus Larry Flint, that's the only other one that I know. But um, anyway. That's an aside. So next week, Schindler's List versus Gladiator 2. Um, I, I hate to call Schindler's List an epic, but um, you know, Gladiator definitely is. Uh, but Schindler's List, obviously, just because of the subject matter, is a very different type of film. But we will be talking about those. And uh, they'll probably be, it'll be one of the more divergent <laughs> weeks, yeah, I would imagine, that we've had to... in terms of of consistent themes but yeah. but we're 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 going for it so tune in next week we'll talk about schindler's list and gladiator and if you haven't listened to last week go back and listen to that one too and you can give us give us your um steve drop drop the the socials and all that stuff give us your guys's count what do you who would who you if, if you want who you would um who you would pick for for each each of our contests we've had so far um you saying who like who won so far no, I'm saying if people want to tell us who they think should be, oh, sorry. what are the emails? Social I got you. I got them? you. Um, yeah. So we have uh, at all the socials, except for TikTok, we're at Duel of the Greats on TikTok. If it's not outlawed by the time this releases, uh, it will be at Duel Podcast. Um, you can also just email us, Duel of the Greats <laughs> at gmail.com. I was the there first follower on the TikTok. I did that while you guys were talking. Oh, oh did you? I, we gotta I, go check I it also out. started following Nate. He's a good yeah. 
That's right. Okay. Um, all right. So with that, we'll wrap up this show uh, for Nate, Steve, and our, our fearless man behind the curtain, Brandon. Uh, thank you all so much for listening, and uh, we'll see you back next week.